Hi there, this is Matt Wakeling and you're listening to the Guitar Speak podcast, the show I produce in Sydney, Australia, where I speak to leading guitarists and guitar figures from all around the world. Thank you so much for joining me. Now I'm working on a bunch of fantastic new episodes, but in the meantime, I present today my conversation with the fusion legend Scott Henderson from April 2017, which was incidentally our first anniversary. So at the end of this episode, you'll hear a couple of shout outs from my good friends, John Sullivan from Sully Guitars and Greg Mara from the band Plenty Heavy and the Iconic Class Music Podcast. All right, let's jump in. Here's my conversation with Scott Henderson. Now on to Scott Henderson. Now Scott Henderson is world renowned through his work with Chick Corea, Joe Zawinul, uh, his own band Tribal Tech, his own solo career, and many, many more uh, great moments. So we talked through Scott's amazing career, including his relocation from Florida to LA in the early 80s to study at the Musicians Institute, and that's where he's now a long-serving and really popular instructor. Talk about the development of his compositional and playing style. We talk gear, including his amazing Sir Signature Series guitars, his love of oddball pedals, and the truth behind those Ibanez guitars, that he was playing in the 1990s. Scott is a really sharp dude, and he uh, combines you know, candor and insight and humor into a really great interview. We listen to some incredible guitar playing, featuring tracks from Scott's Tribal Tech days. Check out Scott's very individual take on the blues. check out some tracks from Scott's latest release, Vibe Station. Fantastic guitar record. Welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, our pleasure. Our great pleasure. Now, um, man, you've got such a, a, a long and um, distinguished career. I'd, I'd love to try and 
jump through. I don't know about distinguished, long, but. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'd love to try and jump through some of the some of the various um, marks, I guess. Um, but what led you to play guitar in, in the first place, Scott? Uh, just, you know, listening to the radio, but, you know, back in my day, in in the 70s, they were actually playing a whole lot of love on the radio, even with the middle section on yeah. AM. So that kind of shows you where where we were and where uh -huh. we are now. But, very, very much. Yeah, yeah. It was more of a progressive mentality back then. I think, you know, that was a time where a lot of people were experimenting with music and a lot of really, that's just a really creative time in music. And I was lucky that I, I was, you know, growing up at that time, I was really influenced by a lot of the stuff I heard on the radio, which which became kind of what we're calling classics now. Yeah, sure. Okay, so Zeppelin, um, who else? Deep Purple, Jimi Hendrix, Jeff Beck, uh, you know, Johnny Winter and Rick Derringer. Um, and then later, uh, I was lucky to get this gig with this all black group. And, uh, for, I was with them for four years. I was the only white kid in the band and we were playing James Brown, cool and the gang tower of power, you know, all of Motown stuff, you nice. know, and at first it was very weird for me cause I'd never heard this music in my life, but I grew to love this music as much as I loved rock and roll. And that kind of taught me something about myself that I could love two completely different kinds of music just as much. And that kind of really changed my life. It really did because that, that it made me the open-minded person that I am now when it comes to music and lots of stuff. Uh-huh. That's cool. That is very cool. There's, um, yeah, I definitely hear, that that funk kind of thing lurking in your background on, on some of your tunes yeah, you know funk rock and jazz and blues and in, in my music and i'm influenced by even classical and country i'm a big gentle giant fan and and uh yes and all those progressive rock bands and my wife is a classical pianist so i hear a lot of bartok and mozart and and everything you know that's great so i just I, i'm just I just, I don't really call myself any one kind of musician. I'm just, I just kind of borrow what I'm influenced by when I, when I write music. And I guess all those influences come out. Awesome. It's what it is, you know? Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Very cool. When, um, when did you literally get a guitar in your hands for the first time? Oh, well, I don't know. It was maybe 10 or 10 or 11. Okay. Now you ended up going to, um, music school. You were doing, um, composition yeah, and yeah. I was actually on the road for quite a while with the, that black group before when that ended I came home and I didn't really have any gigs I didn't really have anything to do and I thought well maybe you know I I was starting to hear some kind of jazzy stuff in the Tower of Power music you know saxophone solos I didn't really understand what was going on I thought maybe it would be a good idea to go to school and try to understand if I was really going to be a professional musician, try to get a little bit of a handle on technically what was going on. So I went to arranging and composition school. Uh, but they didn't have a guitar department, so it wasn't very hands-on as far as guitar. So later I decided to go to MI, which was back then called GIT. And back then it was a jazz guitar school. So I wanted to study with Pat Martino and Joe DiOrio and, these guys that I, I looked up to as jazz guitarists. Okay, yeah. So when um, 
So when you're in music school, though, back in Florida, is that, are you getting the information you need there? Are you starting to understand jazz a little more, even though it's not full-on guitar yeah, intensive? I understood it conceptually, but I wasn't very good on the guitar with it because I didn't know the neck very well at all and didn't even realize I was supposed to know it. I was one of those guitar players that thought it was all about grips and uh -huh. just didn't realize that knowing the notes on the fingerboard and looking at the guitar like a piano was essential to becoming a jazz guitarist. And that's what they kind of, you know, taught me at, at MI when I went there. Okay, yeah. I was going to ask about um, you moving to LA because obviously that's the other side of the country, whether you're chasing gigs or uh, what it was. So MI was the, uh, or GIT, as you said, was the, was the inspiration for that. Yeah, I mean, I moved there to go to school, but I had every intention of staying in L.A. because I knew the gigs, the gigs situation in Florida sucked. Okay. And still does. And uh, so I, I moved to L.A. in hopes of getting, you know, some decent gigs. I knew I was going to stay there. Yep. Okay, cool. Was it ever an option? Well, not, perhaps not for you, but for, say, musicians in Florida or up or down the coast. Was New York ever an option for... For musicians looking for more yeah, well? either New York or LA, they're both really good good choices to to you know when compared to smaller towns. As far as just raising the ceiling of what you can do, I'm not saying anything about bad about small towns because there are places in the United States where you can work and and make a living playing music. But to get recognized as a as an international artist. Um, and make your own records and get hired by famous sidemen. I don't think it hurts to live in LA or New York. I think that was, for me, it helped. So, all right, so you're in LA in 1980. Um, was, uh, was GIT everything you hoped it would be? Uh, yeah, it was actually. I mean, honestly, I was gigging a lot when I was, when the school was going on, and I, I only managed to get there a couple days a week. And most of the time I was there, I spent in Joe DiOrio's open counseling because I learned so much from him just uh, watching him play and taping him and, and transcribing from him and from Pat Martino. And uh, I mean, I think my, my, I guess my, my learning experience at MI was not really based on classes as much as it was on the private, you know, private interaction between you know, me and those guys in an open counseling situation or jamming with those guys and recording them and transcribing what they were doing. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. That's, that's, I mean, that's pretty great in itself. Obviously, you get there and you get to go to these opening counseling sessions and pick the minds of these greats. It was amazing. I mean, for me, I mean, I looked up to Pat Martino for many years and, and, and Joe, too, because I, I knew Joe from Florida. Joe, Joe also lived in Florida for a long time, and I used to go hear him play with Ira Sullivan in Miami. And um, it was a pleasure and, and an honor to be able to study with those guys. So I learned a lot from them. Fantastic. You um, you pulled a couple of great gigs, um, perhaps not too long after you landed, the Chick Corea and the Joe Zawinol gigs. What did you learn from these guys? Well, the Chick Corea gig I only did for six months, so mm -hmm. not much. You know, like I, I didn't really enjoy that gig that much. It was kind of Chick Corea's commercial side, okay. you know, all that crazy about the music. Yeah, didn't like the way he ran the the, the stage. It wasn't a very pleasant experience for me to tell you the truth. Okay. Um, but. 
and Joe, I mean, Joe is a hero of mine and still is, but as far as learning from him, he's not the kind of guy to, to sit around and show you what he's doing. He's not, not that he's not a teacher at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned more from transcribing his stuff off, off his records than I learned from him, you know, but That's I did right. learn some things, uh, conceptually from him just about looseness on stage about about arrangements versus uh, openness, you know, and and uh, to to have a good mixture between the two, because every gig that I had ever done in my life had always been about arrangements. Okay. Yeah. Arrangements. Joe was way more open. Joe was coming more from the Miles Davis thing, where you just play and let what happens happen. And not trying to tie up everything into a neat little tidy arrangement. Mm-hmm. And I love that about him. And, and I try to corp- incorporate that into my own music now. That element of looseness where you never know what's going to happen. That's a great thing to learn. I was going to mention about your composition style. To me, it seems, um, and perhaps this is a reflection of maybe your time with Joe, perhaps, but does seem to be very linear. Um, some of the pieces almost appear to be through composed. Like you're definitely not, you don't seem that interested in say the classic 32 bar jazz structure, the AB. No, no, I'm not, not really though, though, you know, I mean, I was actually thinking about writing one of those kind of tunes for my next album, just for fun, uh-huh. just write a little standard to play on. But, but I mean, I, I don't really think about that stuff when I write. It's just sort of whatever comes out, comes out. And I'm kind of at the mercy of my own art. Like, like I, I don't know what's going to happen. And, and I, I realize now that that's okay. So used to, I, I used to actually feel intimidated by the fact that I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to really know the outcome until I hear it until it's done. And I would be intimidated by that, thinking, what if I don't like it? And then I started to realize a long time ago that if I didn't like it, I wouldn't use it. And that, and that if it, it, at the end, whatever comes out, if I don't like it, I'm not going to use it, and that's okay. And, and, and if I have to throw it away, I throw it away and move on to the next tune. It, it's, it's like, I really don't care. You know what okay. I mean? Yeah. Like, I honestly don't care. I just know that sooner or later something good's going to happen that I like. And that's that's really all I'm concerned about. Sure. No matter how long it takes, um it just it's it's a process and when people ask me about like do you have some kind of like uh formula that you use when you write? I really don't. Uh, it's different every time and I want to keep it different every time so I don't get into some kind of rut of doing it the same exact way every time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, a long answer to a question. I, I, yeah. <laughs> that's a great answer. That's great. Yeah, writing is, it's, you know, you, you know as well as me, it's way more art than science. Sure, yes. You know, it's very hard to put a definition on art you just you do it and then it's sort of like you do it but you analyze it later yeah okay and it's impossible to analyze it while i'm doing it because half the time i'm writing by colors uh and i have no idea technically what's going on i'm just putting my fingers on the guitar and looking for sounds i'm not thinking 
oh, I'm going to go to A minor or B minor or D major seven. I'm not thinking of chords in that way. After I finish the writing, I'll analyze it and see what chords they ended up being. But I'm not so much thinking in a theoretical way when I write. I'm just writing by ear. Mm, okay. And, and, uh, yeah, not using a whole lot of theory or anything like that. Sure. I like that idea of colors. That's that's a cool way to conceptualize it. Yeah, it's painting. You know, just sit down and, and play some notes and see what happens and experiment and jam along with the... That's what I do sometimes is just have a drum groove go and just jam along with the drum groove until something cool happens. And a lot of times you do some of the the things you like the best by accident. Mm -hmm. They just happen. And those moments... You capture them, you can use them in your composition. I first became aware of you through um, Tribal Tech. Was that one of your first projects where you got to uh, perform a lot of your own material? Yeah, that was the first. How'd you meet Gary Willis? We met at the Musicians Union in L.A. Just I, I was uh, jamming with a, a little band I had there that was the beginnings of Tribal Tech. And uh, Roscoe Beck was playing bass, but later he moved to Texas, so I started playing with Gary. Okay, yeah. And how did that partnership work? Because you, you were both obviously credited as the leaders of the band, but how did that work in, in practice? Well, it, it was pretty much um that band was pretty much a democracy it was like a real band i, I guess me and we always looked at it as the writer had the final say of how the tune came out okay. and you know so willis was the boss when we were working on his tunes and i was the boss when we were working on my tunes and even if one of the side men had a tune he was the boss working on that tune okay yeah so, so we kind of looked at it that way we never wrote together or anything like that. I just wrote my tunes and he wrote his tunes and we brought them in. And um, yeah, that was it. Again, that seems like a, a cool way to do it though. So you're not, you're not hacking ideas back and forth to someone brings in a tune and then you, you take it from there. No, even when we were going through that period where we were jamming in the studio, because we, Tribal Tech is one of the, the I guess it was one of the real, uh, examples of how i learned about the concept i was talking about with joe the openness of music mm -hmm. because in the first days of tribal tech the music was very arranged because we never had a chance to go out on the road and play it uh we didn't actually start touring until after our fourth or fifth album okay yeah we started going out and touring and realizing hey this music sounds okay on the record but it's not much fun to play because it's the same every night so we started 
erasing sections and making them more jam oriented and improvisation oriented and making them more open until we finally got to a point where we just wanted to jam period. And just, uh, we just liked that whole idea of going into the studio with no written music and just playing. And then later we would take that music and write over top of it to make them into composition sounding, you know, pieces. Okay. Yep. And that was a lot of fun. That was, that was, to me, what makes Tribal Tech special was during that period. Yeah, I think you guys sound a lot different to other sort of LA fusion bands at the time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, they're way more progressive, for sure. Uh huh. Now, your rig at the time, I saw you, um, oh, I can't remember, it must have been sort of mid early 90s when, when you guys came to Australia, but I remember your rig at the time was Ibanez guitars, boogies, you're running some racks of, of things. Yeah, back when I didn't know any better. Yeah, <laughs> you still had a cool tone though. There was, um, I mean, it was certainly more compressed and gainier than than what's happening nowadays, or what's been happening for quite a while, I guess. Yeah. With you, how did you fall into into that sort of so that when you say you didn't know any better, what do you mean by that? Well, just stupidity, just thinking that I <laughs> that I had to have a stereo rig and a rack and all that. You know, it was actually a lot of guitar players fell into that thing into the eighties. Sure. And, and I don't know why we didn't know at the time that it just didn't sound as good as just a good old Marshall and a pedal. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we all did that though. My, my, my rack was very modest, but yeah, I think for me, um, and I'm sure I've said this before on this show, but for me, I just realized more and more pedals were creeping their way back into my rig. That was the yeah. signal for me. Yeah, I mean, my rig is really simple now. It's just a very modest little pedal board and, and, and an amp and uh, no stereo stuff. Or It's very, it's really quite simple, mm-hmm. my, my rig. And yeah, it sounds sounds good. Yeah, cool. I had um I had Joe Elliott on the show who actually introduced us, which was which was great. He's a great player. He um he was thanking you for uh, getting his stereo rig to actually work back in the day. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, in um, on some of the tribal tech stuff, I'm thinking of your self-titled album. There's a couple of tunes there that kind of hint at um, a bluesier kind of a kind of approach and tone. Things like um, "Big Girl Blues" and "Elvis mm-hmm. at the Hop." And then uh, I think was it 1994 when you released "Dog Party," that your blues-based record. Yeah. Well, you know, I had a been playing blues since i started playing guitar and it was just a matter of happenstance that by the time i got a record deal it was with tribal tech and tribal tech was a very non-blues oriented band it was pretty strictly fusion sure and and so i tried to throw some blues in here and there but the guys they just really weren't interested in that kind of music they they were they're coming from funk and jazz and blues just didn't really have a place there so i started i thought well you know i'd like to document what i what i like to play sometimes and what i grew up playing so i started doing blues records
um, then when Travel Tech broke up, finally, I, I was like, well, I don't want to do just blues the rest of my life and just have a career as a blues musician because I'm not that either. I'm like a mixture. So now my current records kind of reflect what I do, which is a little bit of everything. And, and um, like Vibe Station and Well to the Bone, those are more real representations of what I do because they mix blues with jazz, with funk, with rock, with whatever. Okay, yeah. I was going to um, mention Vibe Station, which um, pretty much what you've just summed up, it does sound like a mix of your different influences. Um, so Tribal Tech, I guess the breaking up of Tribal Tech, when did that occur? I guess around 2000. Okay. Um, yeah, Gary Willis moved to Spain. might have been 99. Yeah. Um, Willis moved to Spain, and we didn't really want to do records uh, um with someone living in another country, it's sure. very difficult to do that. Though we did Tribal Tech X because he came back to LA to visit his family. We figured as, as long as he's in town, we went to the studio, we created about 30 jams and we picked the best 10 and Willis was assigned three. I was assigned three and Kinsey was assigned three. Uh-huh. And one, we just kept the way it was without touching it. And, um, so, you know, when we each produced those those songs and made them what they are, and I like Tribal Tech X. I think it's a pretty good record. Even though it was uh, jammed live, there was a lot of post-production, long-distance post-production, like international post-production. Uh, yeah. And it wasn't easy, you know, to, 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 to do it that way. But I think, I think the album came out really nice, and I like the album. Yeah, cool. But I don't know if I'd do it again. Okay. Because it's it's really hard to, to to work when you don't have people. Like, in other words, I'm playing tracks for Gary's tune, but he's in Spain. Yeah. I'd much prefer have him here while I'm recording so that I don't have to do a bunch of stuff that he doesn't like, and then I have to do it again. Sure, yeah. So it just makes a lot more sense when everybody lives in the same city. Yeah, for sure. But I guess, um, like you're saying, so the break, when that, when you formally stopped working together i guess um that freed you up to pursue whatever you wanted with your own solo stuff yeah cool now um just just backing up a little bit dog party and and the blues records that that followed there was a big change in your tone i think i read somewhere at the time that you were talking to mike landau about um strat tone and and that kind of stuff is that true yeah i mean mike is very generous and he helped me in a lot of ways you know um giving me advice on gear and you know the 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 gear that i used on dog party was so completely opposite from what i was using with tribal tech because mm-hmm. it was basically an amp and a pedal yeah, that's yeah. it uh and and but i liked that tone and i never like that sort of changed that album it's like i didn't want to go back to my tribal tech tone after experiencing what it was like to play with a more vintage tone uh-huh. uh a lot more fun, a lot more organic to me. Um, it just felt like me more, and, and because that was the tone of my youth, and I just I never went back. I never went back to racks and switching systems and all that stuff. I kept it simple after that. If we if we compare that with Vibe Station, yeah, you very much have kept that tone. It's it's great, and um, yeah, with a bit more harmonic movement. It's single coil pickups, like Strat, and just an 
the pedal or various pedals, you know, like. Yeah, um, right. Uh, sometimes I'll use a booster. Sometimes I'll use a distortion pedal or a fuzz or an Octavia or a wacky pedal or whatever. But it's basically just a guitar, a pedal, and an amp. That's it. When did, when did you hook up with Sir Guitars? Um, Sir, um, John Sir, I, I met him when he was, he actually had a little shop, guitar repair shop, behind Bob Bradshaw's place. And I met him then, and uh, he started working for Fender as a master builder for Fender. And I asked him to build me a guitar because I was not happy with my Ibanez guitars at all. Okay. I never was, actually. Um, it's just the best thing I could find without buying an expensive Strat. Okay. Um, yeah. So I didn't like the, the, the Strats of the day. So I had Ibanez build me a custom guitar, which was basically a Strat. Yeah. Um, it was not an Ibanez at all because it was made by Mace Bailey in his custom shop and really didn't have much to do with the guitars that Ibanez was making for the public. Okay. Except for the name on the headstock. So I never really played Ibanez guitars, to tell you the truth. Okay. They never got Henderson model, and I never played any guitar that wasn't specifically made by Mace Bailey in his shop. And so it was. I never actually played Ibanez guitars, even though they used my name. Okay. Yeah, I remember seeing all those ads and things. I never played an Ibanez guitar in my life. <laughs> there you go. No, it was just a custom-made Iben, uh, custom-made guitar by Mace Bailey that they put Ibanez on the head headstock. Yeah. Okay. Okay. They they had uh, traditional bridges. They had my pickups. Yeah. Uh, they had my neck shape and all that stuff. Uh, they just so completely not an Ibanez guitar. Uh, so those. Are... They, so, I'm sorry. When when they wanted to put an Ibanez guitar out with my name on it it was going to have a Floyd Rose and it was going to not be anything like the guitar that I was playing. And I told them no. And that's when I left. Wow. Yeah. You, you think they would be paying attention to notice, for example, you're not a Floyd player. Well, they just, that was exactly what I told them. It's like, how can you put on a guitar and call it a Scott Henderson guitar with a Floyd Rose on it? I've never played a Floyd Rose, Rose bridge in my life wow. and I would never. So wow. it's just, you know, so I split, and I, I got this Fender guitar that John made uh, for me when he was working there. And I played that for many years Okay. until until he went and started his own company. And then I was his first endorser. Okay. Nice. So um, so the Sir guitars, though, do the same kind of ideas carry on, I guess, from those, from your custom Ibanezes or your non-Ibanez Ibanezes um, in terms of, you know, so you're running three single coils, you know, yeah, there, there are some similarities, but they're uh, in other ways they're way different. Okay, so um, what's the sir? What's the what's the go with that then? What's your go-to guitar now? Like? It's like playing a vintage Strat, mm -hmm. but with uh, bigger frets and uh, a neck that's much more flat. You know, it's like a 16-inch radius neck. So it's it's basically like having a vintage Strat that's easier to play. Yeah, great. But the, flatter neck and big frets mm -hmm. and it also has a noiseless system which uh gets rid of the hum and it also has you know really great great pickups mm -hmm. and uh and a very modified fender bridge that actually stays in tune 
Okay. Talking about the bridge and Floyd Roses and, and traditional bridges, etc. You, you are very expressive with the Tremolo Bridge, so obviously that was an important thing for them to get right for you. Yeah, I mean, it, it does have to stay in tune, and there's a lot that's wrong with Fender bridges. I mean, the original concept of the Fender six-screw bridge was a great idea, but not fully fleshed out. There's a lot of mistakes in it that, that have been corrected by Sir. Okay. Are there any particular particular areas they've done that? Well, uh, the the holes in the plate are drilled bigger, so that it's because that's one of the main thing, reasons that the fender bridge doesn't stay in tune uh-huh. is because the holes are too small, and uh, the they hang up on the screws, and they don't stay and it doesn't stay in tune. Yeah. No stop fender bridge stays in tune, mm-hmm. and uh, so they fixed that. The block is modified. Um, all the powder coating is removed on the block, which really ruins the, you know, which the powder coating really ruins the tone. And it's really unbelievable that Fender doesn't realize that, but I guess they just don't. Um, I, I won't ever understand that, but, but <laughs> yeah, if you buy a stock Fender guitar with a Fender vintage bridge and the block is powder coated then you've got to take the block off and sand all the, the powder coating off or it's just not going to sound good at all yeah wow so that, they also set it up in a way uh the depth of, of the you know the positioning of the screws is set up a certain way to make it stay in tune uh also the saddles are at the correct height which also makes it stay in tune I don't know if you've seen a lot of fenders where the saddles are very low with the screws sticking up. Yeah, yeah. That will that's one of the main things that makes the the bridge go out of tune. The saddles need to be very high so that so that the the screws are flush with the top of the the saddles. Gotcha, gotcha. And the um and the single the noiseless system the the sur system's great. That as a single coil player these days you must be loving that. Yeah, well, you can't play in a city without it these days. There's so much RF everywhere. The hum would be actually louder than the note. <laughs> no one wants that. Yeah, spe- especially if you're playing with some gain. I mean, it's just I- impossible to play a real single coil in any kind of a city that has radio because it's just it's insane. It's radio all over the place, and the hum is, is, is pretty nasty compared to what it used to be like 20 years ago. Can we talk about Vibe Station a little bit, being your latest album? The um, the tones on that are great. So you do veer between these very vintage tones to these whacked out, yeah, some really kooky kind of messed up tones, which I loved. Um, what's the tune? There's a tune uh, with a fuzz. It sounds like it's freaking out on your low notes. Um, the Covered Head. Yeah, that's a um, that's a, one of those uh, Robotone trombetta trombetta robotone pedals okay yeah um, it's really cool it's you know the harder you pick the more you hear the effect yeah right yeah it sounds very dynamic it sounds like it's really dynamic great pedal cool what other uh what other kind of pedals are you pulling out on that record uh um, i used on on uh festival of ghosts there's a cool solo with the fuzz factory which is uh, really another wacky pedal that when you mess with the volume control, it does octaves and just freaks out. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 
it plays stuff depending on where the volume knob is set. It can sound very different. Okay, yeah, that that's that's cool. That tone. it sounds it sounds straight ahead, but then the back end of the notes sound like some Velcro's ripping or something. of sounds that thing can make it's really one of the best pedals just as far as uh creative pedals that i've ever bought it's really a good one cool that that tune festival of ghosts that um also features some farm animals at the end is that is that a nod yeah. to dog party or something yeah no it's just a it's a funny setup to the next tune which was about a friend of mine who, who uh, that's actually a true story, who his wife asked him for a, a divorce and he went, do what? <laughs> He's a, uh, a I so, okay. uh, Do what? I, I, yeah, I wonder, what, what does that mean? Now I know, that's great. <laughs> that's a telly on that tune. That's a Sir Telly on, on that country tune. Okay, yep. Mm-hmm. So you're calling that a country tune? That's, that's sort well, of... Yeah, I mean, it sort of has a country flavor. I wouldn't call it a country tune. <laughs> Not going to get played on country radio, but uh, it's a country-influenced tune. Excellent, man. To me, it sounded like blues from another planet or something. Uh, it's pretty whack. cows at the end too i like that as well <laughs> there's been some quirky moments in your career like uh dog party it are all the songs written from that's it's going back to your first blues record but it seems like the vocal tunes are written from the dog's perspective of life is that's that right written from this perspective of a dog <laughs> <laughs> and i thought well, nobody's done that before so <laughs> <laughs> just do it and see what happens but i love it funny i loved it fence climbing blues <laughs> it's all good and i think i can't remember which record it was was it maybe house tour down had that beautiful duet i hate you yeah you know it always blows me away that they did that on a first take and they didn't break up laughing <laughs> and they had just gotten the lyrics too so I thought for sure they're going to, at some point of the song, they're going to break up laughing. We're going to have to do another take. But they went through that thing. That's a very first take. Wow. The, one take and they were done. <laughs> I was like, wow. Okay. That's pretty amazing. 
That's great. It's um, yeah. For if if Alice is haven't heard it, it's this beautiful. It's kind of like almost like a '60s kind of beautiful yeah. doo-wop kind of yeah. duet yeah. guy girl song, and, and they're just uh, tearing each other apart. That they that they managed to do that on a first take without laughing. <laughs> Your mouth like a sailor. Your cheap cosmetics made. good so good have you um i don't think you've used vocal material for a while though in your trio setting no i i'm just kind of going instrumental again it's challenging to play um instrumental guitar um trio because <coughs> i have to so much that i have to do and it's very challenging and i like to be challenged mm -hmm. um i'm going to keep doing this as long as i can keep coming up with ideas i'm, I'm writing new music now for another record along the same lines as Vibe Station. Okay, great. You know, just struggling to play the things that I wrote. Because I always seem to write songs that are too hard for me to play. Uh-huh. But, and it'll take me a good week to get each one of these songs under my fingers because it's a lot of voicings and a lot of difficult fingerings that I'll have to, that, that you know, when I'm writing, I'm punching these chords in one by one, not thinking that, ush, I'm going to have to actually play this <laughs> okay <laughs> when i finally come to actually you know getting to play it it's hard you know like there's a lot of really it's very difficult and it's very challenging for me and i like that kind of challenge to see if i can actually play what i wrote and um yeah it's 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 hard but i'm able to do it right now i'm working on this one tune and I'm about 20 clicks under the tempo that it should be, but I may actually able to get all the way through it. Um, so I figure if I can do it slow, sooner or later I'll be able to do it up to tempo. I just have to keep working on it. Yeah, cool. I love that. I love that you're still, yeah, you're still up for the challenge. I mean, it's not as if you've got anything to prove to anyone. Uh, no, but I mean, you know, the tune is the tune, and when I'm writing it, it's it's that's the song, and it's got to be played the way it was written, and and uh, I just sometimes when I'm writing, I don't realize how hard it's going to be when I'm, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not having much pity on myself and <laughs> you yourself because I'm just writing this and I'm not thinking, oh, I don't know if you should write this chord going to this chord because that's a hell of a try. To, uh, that's a hell of a move. You sure you can do that? I'm not saying that. To <laughs> I should be. <laughs> that's great. I love it. I'm, and I'm like, oh my god! I how do I how did I expect myself to be able to do this? But you know, whatever. I'm going to be able to do it. Uh huh. <clears throat> nice way to do it. Nice. Um, who are the guys in your trio? Who who's your rhythm section? Right now, I'm working with um, a, a bass player in Paris. His name is Romain Labai, uh -huh. and a drummer from Paris, Archibald Ligonnière. And uh, those guys have done my last three European tours and um, so yeah I'm going to be working with them in mainly in Europe I'm 
don't know yet. It depends on where the gigs come um, because I'm still also playing with Travis and Alan. We just did a uh, Central American tour with Travis and Alan, the guy, uh, Travis Carlton and Alan Hertz, the guys who played on the record. Okay, yep. Great. Man, those guys kill it. I love, I love they're playing on Vibe Station. Um, yeah, they play really good on the record. I'm really, I'm really happy with what they did on it. Yeah, right. Cool. So if you're, if, your European bands in obviously in, in Europe, in France. How do you how will you go about the recording process? Will they come over to LA to work with you? Uh, I suppose so, yeah. If if you know, when it comes time to do another record, if I'm playing the music more with them, then I guess I'll use them on the record. I haven't really had to make a decision yet. Okay, sure. Because I don't know who I'm gonna be playing the most with. And I don't know which musicians will fit which tunes. So um, I haven't even thought about that yet because these tunes are so new. Sure. Yep. I haven't even had a chance to play them out on the road yet. It does seem like you're doing a lot of gigs at the moment. Are you you still loving it as much as ever? Yeah, I'm not loving the travel. Um, yep. uh, unfortunately, it seems to be more flying than it ever was. Uh, I can remember you know, 15 years ago, just going, flying to Europe and the whole tour was in the van. Okay. Yeah. And then fly home. It's definitely not like that anymore. It's flying all over the place, even within Europe. Um, and I don't know why that is. It may be just because, uh, the availability of gigs is not, uh, you know, like a guy will say, well, yeah, I want the band, but I can only have them on Friday, and you're somewhere clear across Europe on yeah, Thursday. Okay. The only way to get there is to fly there, and and it's just been more and more flying, and which also sucks because not only is flying a drag, especially after you read about the stuff that just happened on United. Yes, you know the other drag about it is that when I fly, I have to rent gear, and I don't get to to use my own gear sure so so what would you take say for a european tour what were well, you able to bring with you and what do you have to rent my agent actually has a duplicate of my gear that i use in la he has a sir head and okay. a carry cabinet and then i bring my guitar and my pedals yeah but when i'm not in the van and i'm flying i have to rent and i have to play for the marshall usually i rent a marshall jcm 2000 yeah and uh they're it's not I wouldn't call it a terrible amp. It's a, it's an okay amp. It does the job, but it doesn't sound nearly as good as my Sir. Okay, yeah. So, you know, um, and you know, I've done some fine concerts with that amp, and it's like I I can totally get my tone with it, and but it's it doesn't sound as sweet, or and it doesn't have the kind of uh, response that my Sir has. But you know, so I'd much rather be in the band playing my own amp sure, and writing. Yeah. Band and being on flights and, and 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 going through security and getting treated like shit by airlines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you, you weigh those two things up. One's so, definitely better. Be like, how am I liking touring? I I don't like it as much. I like playing just as much, but I don't like the the you know the traveling as much, obviously, because the traveling has gotten a lot worse. Sure, gotcha. Gotcha. Now, when you're at home, you're um, you're teaching at GIT. You've, how long have you been teaching there for? I've been teaching there since '81. Wow. Yeah. So pretty much. I just once you left. Line... What's that? Yeah, once you left, you you got a job there. 
Yeah. That's awesome. And um, I just did an online course for them, which which actually goes online on Monday. Oh, okay. Tell me about that. Um, well, it's a it's a sort of course for beginning to advance. I mean, beginning to intermediate students, and uh, it's a ten week course that takes them from the very beginning of learning guitar, the scales, and where to put your fingers, to some pretty advanced stuff toward the end. And um, it's a it's a really cool course. It was put together by myself and Stig Matheson, the head of the uh, guitar department. Uh huh. Great. And uh, we're we're really happy with the way it came out. We were hoping to get a lot of students. Excellent, excellent. Now you mentioned open counseling being you know, a really great part of your your experience there, and uh, it seems like a lot of your focus now is is doing the opening counseling sessions yourself. What what do you enjoy about those? Well, that's basically all I've ever done there. I've never really been much of a classroom teacher because I go on the road and it would be hard for me to teach classes. Sure. But um, open counseling, I feel, is the real heart of our school um, because the classes face it. I mean, classes is about, is about the doling out of information and you need it. You know, it's it's vocabulary. It's, it's ideas that you need. To, uh, um, everybody needs to learn it. But to become a really good player, you've got to think about things like tone, feel, your approach, your touch on the instrument, um, transcribing and learning from the, the great musicians that came before us. And that's the focus of open counseling. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, you know, where a player would actually learn how to sound good with the information that he already knows. And you get the information in your classes but open counseling and the teachers in the open counseling, that's their job is to teach you how to sound the best you can with the information that you already have. Okay. And yeah. so, so it's a very important part of the school. I'd say it's the more artistic part of the school or the more right brain part of the school. Cool. Nice. Uh, yeah. I mean, we, we really believe in our open counseling and we think it sets us apart from other schools. I can only imagine how awesome it'd be to walk into a room and there's there's a player such as yourself that you can, uh, you know, ask very dis distinct questions um, to help you on a very specific issue for your own playing. That's really yeah. really cool. It's a it's basically like having a private lesson with someone, but there's other students there too. And yeah, cool. Sometimes it is a private lesson. Sometimes there's only one guy in my room. Sometimes there's five or six. It just depends on you know they can come in and go as they please. Uh huh. Gotcha. So a lot of times there's just one guy there and I'm, we're having a private lesson and he's just asking me like, usually I, I'm a songs oriented teacher, always have been. I, I like to teach everything that I teach in the context of a song. Mm -hmm. So I tell my students to bring in a song that you're working on and, and, you know, we work on getting inside that tune and, and making the best of, you know, how you can sound your best on that song. Great. I love that. That's such a, a such a good approach and then i guess the player then um you know takes the ideas that they've dug out of one song and obviously they can apply it to another and another sure. yeah that's the beauty about learning a lot of songs because what you learn in one song very often applies to what what you can do in another song wow do you, do you see any common kind of areas that guitarists that you'll meet in these sessions have like obviously you've been doing it for many many years are there just are there a few things that just keep repeating keep ideas that guitarists still want to get better at or are struggling with or well the the main people that the main issue that 
any student struggles with is just lack of experience. Okay. I mean, it basically comes down to that. I mean, you can show somebody how to do something and where to put your fingers and even have them do it to the point where it actually sounds like music, but get them up on the bandstand and there are issues, you know, because maybe the guy hasn't worked with, with many drummers and playing with a real drummer is nothing like playing with a drum machine or a metronome. Sure, yeah. Drums orchestrate different things differently. And if and a drummer can easily lose somebody that doesn't have a real internal clock happening, and the only way to develop that internal clock is to is is the experience of playing with real drummers and real in real musicians and interacting with them, and that's something you can't really learn in, in, unless you do it all the time. So one of the things that MI has and other schools have is live performance classes where you get the chance to play with bass players and drummers. And um, I find that the more you do it, like anything else, the better you get at it. So the main thing that, like I said, it's lack of experience, lack of communicating and playing with other musicians. Okay, yep, yep. Where it tends to be more of a study than music. And music is only so much about studying. It's only so much about science. It's way more about art, and you know, and and the actual interaction with organic in, interaction with other musicians. It's not a. Uh, uh, it's it's not like painting where you're all by yourself and you're you're painting without anyone else in the room. It's team effort. And learning how to work with other musicians is essential. Uh, learning how to mix yourself volume-wise in so that it, you, you're the right mix. Yeah, yeah. Uh, learning how to hear yourself while at the same time paying attention to what other people are doing. It's 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 involved, and and it takes a lot of experience to learn how to do that. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, which you're not going to get with your head in a book or running your scales. No. <laughs> not even. No. <laughs> nice. What about um? I don't know, what about technical issues or harmonic issues? Uh, are, there, are there things that kids will come and ask you about that seem to reoccur? Well, I think everybody, you know, grows as they, 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 your ear grows as the more longer, the longer you play. And of course, yeah. more difficult harmony, harmony that may sound just like a bunch of avant-garde nonsense to you at first starts to make sense once you get used to hearing it like yeah, i mean sure. i'm sure if i had have listened to giant steps yeah during the time when i was listening mainly to deep purple <laughs> I, <couldn't, laughs> I don't think i would have understood it at all of course yeah but, but after years of listening to jazz and listening to different chord progressions now giant steps sounds completely inside to me okay yeah and, wow and, and so uh, i mean and there's a lot of music that I listen to by Wayne Shorter um, and other composers, Zawinul, um, you know, whatever, these kind of modern composers. I'm sure at one time I would have thought that music was avant-garde. I don't see it as avant-garde at all anymore. Okay. I see it as really brilliant composing, and it makes total sense to me. But it is an acquired taste. Sure. So, so you know, it's about listening, and it's about, so much of learning music is about listening. Okay. Yep. Yep. Not so much doing, but just actually listening and analyzing. Yeah. Great. 
So what if you get, say, a rock player come to you and they're interested in expanding their harmonic vocabulary? Um, for example, like you said, the deep purple giant steps analogy. What, what do you get the rock kid to do? What, what do you get them to do to stretch their well, ears to start with? Do is to get them to start listening mm -hmm. to different kinds of music. And, and, you know, you can just get a student to listen to something and go, well, what do you think about that? What do you hear? What is it that is pleasing to you or not pleasing to you about that? Mm -hmm. And when they say, well, I like this or I don't like that, you pull that apart and say, well, this is what's going on here. If I slow it down and just take this chord going to this chord, does that make sense to you? Maybe it makes more sense to you if it happens really slow. You're just not used to hearing it happen so fast okay yeah. so hearing all these chords coming at you in a fast tempo maybe if you slow it down to half speed and hear these tunes going by much slower does it make a lot more sense usually they say yes so so a lot of times it's just the sheer velocity that these chords are how many chords are coming at you in a yeah, short period sure. of time okay they don't understand if you pull that apart if, if you slow it down to one, you know, to to not just half as fast, but like say like, you know, five times less as yeah, fast, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and you see that here's a chord that lasts with three or four bars going to another chord that lasts three or four bars. You go, well, there's nothing that weird about that. But what sounds weird to them is the fact that all these chords are coming at them in a in a in a pretty short amount of time, yeah, and they're not hearing that so uh yeah we try to break it down like that and try to get them to understand that harmony is not as weird as they think it is uh-huh yeah cool i like that i like that approach and um nice i guess that applies to your own music as well i guess backing up when when you talk about your writing in colors and you don't know what the next chord is you're more like hearing the, the flavors of it um that's interesting as well when you um when you're soloing say over your own chord progressions do you have to do the same sort of thing are you breaking it down per chord or are you again are you just hearing the flavors on top of the chord progressions no i mean that's more technical i mean if i'm soloing over a progression there there are rules that apply to improvisation i mean you know you unless you're playing outside but okay. to play inside over a chord progression each chord has its rules you know there are certain arpeggios scales and tools that work over that chord and i'm likely to use what you're supposed to use you okay. know i'm not like an avant-garde improviser i don't just play c sharps on c major seventh chords right um you, you know i mean i follow the normal rules that that apply to jazz improvisation but i do play out at times and break those rules but it's more like to create a small amount of tension before I come back and resolve it to, you know, what's inside. So I consider myself a fairly inside player, um, unless I'm playing on a one chord vamp. And then of course I'm going to take it as out as I possibly can, okay. because that's what you're supposed to do on one chord vamps. Sure. But when I'm playing over harmonies, especially harmonies that the audience doesn't know, yep. you know, that's when, you know, like, a lot of people ask me, when do you take it out? When, when don't you? If you're playing a, a song like Stella by Starlight, that people know and they've heard hundreds of times, then yeah, you know, you have more liberty to take it out because people know what that song sounds like. Okay, yep. Or a blues or something like that, or rhythm changes or songs that people know. 
But when you're playing your own progression that no one has ever heard before, I tend to play more on inside on a progression like that because I want the audience to experience the changes. I want them to experience that progression, not an outside version of it. Okay, yep. Especially on the record, I'm probably going to play more inside because I want the, the audience to hear those chords and to hear you know, a solo over those chords that defines those chords. So I'm not likely to play really out unless there are really common things in, in those changes, like, say, a t some 2-5-1 progressions okay. that yeah. expects tension and resolution on a progression like that. Okay, yeah, cool. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally, totally. And given yeah. that the changes are likely to be super interesting anyway, um, there's hopefully, yeah. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> fingers crossed. <Yeah. laughs> it's there's going to be. That's one of the hard things about writing because often, often the tunes that you write over the melody aren't that much fun to solo over. Okay, and then you have to change them, or maybe elongate them, or take certain chords out. Okay, add chords to make an interesting and fun solo section. Okay. You know, because well, you, sometimes you can't just take the chords that happen verbatim over the melody. Uh, sometimes they, they, they go too fast, or sometimes they just don't lend themselves to soloing over. Okay. I wonder if that leads to your, your that linear kind of approach to composition then, if you're, if you're changing up sections like that. Well, I, I don't think you can... At least for me, I can only speak for myself, but I don't actually know what's going to happen until the song's over. Yeah, sure. Like, if I'm writing a chord progression over a melody, there's no way I can know that that's going to be fun to solo over until the tune's done, and then I take away the melody and listen to what I have as harmony and and just try to solo over it. And I go, nah, you know, this isn't really making it as a solo section. It isn't fun or it's not resolving in a way that I think is very pleasing to the ear, okay. then I'll either just ditch it and not solo over that section or I'll change it so that it is a good solo section. Yeah, okay. Cool. You know, there's a weather report tunes where there's just tons of chords in the melody, but when it comes time to solo, they, they solo over a one-chord band. Okay, and, yep. And, and not only is that cool in one way, because it rests in a place where sometimes you want to have a resting point where there's so much harmony going on, you need just a place to relax for a while. Sure, you know, sure. To let it settle into one key for a while, and that might be a good place to take a solo so that, so that you know, you save the listener from constant barrage of harmony <laughs> from beginning <laughs> to end. Yes. You know? Most of my tunes have harmony, and they also have resting spots. Okay, where I yep, yep. Give the give the listener a break from all that harmony to just do a one chord vamp for a little while. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. It needs to be balance, you know. Some, there needs to be a balance sometimes. Yeah, cool. And I guess something like the blues, which you're still infusing in your work in different ways, um, you know, some familiar ground as well, I guess. Sure, of course. You know, bring the blues in, and that definitely sounds familiar to listeners and, and, and attractive, especially after listening to a bunch of crazy chords that they don't <laughs> understand. Exactly. <laughs> but make sure we'll understand. You know, mo so many people have told me about my music, and not just my music, but the music of some of my favorite composers. They'll always say stuff like, even really 
you know, advanced musicians will say this is that I like that music. It's some of my favorite music, but it took me three or four listens to start enjoying it. Okay. Yeah. You know, because maybe it was a little bit too just like what, you know, when they first heard it, but after two or three listens, they start to, it starts all to make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'll admit totally with, with your music. Um, yeah. Moving aside from the, the straight, the more straight ahead blues stuff. I'm totally there as well. And it, because you're not writing these very obvious heads, and then you solo, then you you bring the head back. You you know you're avoiding those kind of ideas. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm there as well. It takes me a few listens. Yeah. I dig the playing and the tones, and I, I dig the whole thing. But a few listens, you need you need to start understanding the piece. Yeah. And as modern writers, you got to figure that these really simple melodies, if you're trying to write a simple melody over a simple chord progression, I got news for you. It's been done. <laughs> yes. You know, just about every simple melody and simple chord progression has already been used. So, uh, you know, take the Beatles and <laughs> take, <laughs> take, take Beethoven and Mozart and the Beatles and Steely Dan yeah, and rather yeah. just about everybody else. And, oh my God, uh, we're living in an age right now where if you're not different, you're going to be rehashing what's already been done. Mm -hmm. So you almost have to be different and, and or at least strive to be different and, and uh, hopefully create something new that's still pleasing to listen to. That's the goal. Yeah, awesome. You mentioned your wife's a classical pianist. Do you ever, um, do you ever play, play music together or, or compose or anything like that? We have before at, at played a duet at, uh, at our daughter's uh, graduation. <laughs> Lovely. But we've never played uh, played together professionally. Sure. Uh, we're doing such different kind of music, but I have yeah. definitely been just awestruck by some of the stuff that she plays mm -hmm. by these amazing composers like Ravel and Debussy and Bartok and Mozart and, oh my God, just some of this music is just outrageous. Yeah, wow, that's that's cool. Yeah, I like you've mentioned like the twentieth century guys in there as well. Yeah. I, I dig that stuff. Mm -hmm. And then there's modern guy, modern bands like Gentle Giant. Gentle Giant uh, was one of the best pr prog rock bands, especially with the writing. Mm -hmm. The writing was amazing on some some of that music, and uh, it's one of my favorite bands. I grew up listening to them, and I'm influenced by them in my own writing. I I like to have that quirkiness and and that kind of weird compositional style even though i don't know if my writing will ever be as good as carrie many or as he, he was the keyboard player for gentle giant and he's okay. a genius and just you know deserves every bit of recognition that some of the more famous classical uh composers that we know of deserve he he's uh, totally a genius and uh, i i love that music Cool. I'll have to check them out. I've not heard of them. So are they still working or? No, they broke up a long time ago, but Gentle Giant was a real phenomenon. I mean, each each guy in the band played five or six different instruments Wow. and sang like birds. So when you hear a Gentle Giant concert, I was fortunate enough to see him three times. And if you would close your eyes, you would hear 20 guys on stage. Okay. But wow. only five. And the fact that they could play these instruments and sing at the same time and play all these complicated parts and sing something totally different while they were playing, each musician's a virtuoso. 
in, in the band. They're, they're really quite a unique and amazing group of musicians that I'd have to say that phenomenon has not happened again. Wow. In music. Cool. So for you, Scott, what's what's the rest of um, 2017 look like? So you, you're writing new new stuff, obviously. Is there anything else I'm going on? Slowly coming up with tunes. I have four new tunes for a new album, and I'll need the rest of the year to, to, to finish. If I can finish nine tunes by the end of the year, I'll I'll be really happy. Yeah, yeah. Is that maybe sometime next year I'll be able to record a new record? Cool, nice. And have you got any more gigs coming up? Yeah, uh, I'm I'm in Europe, May, June, and July. Okay. And um, let's see. Um, then I think I'm in Argentina in, in South America in October. And so yeah, you know, some gigs, some touring. And, and, and just when I'm home, just trying to write as, as often as I can. And that's, that's about it. Good stuff. Sounds good. What's, uh, what's the best way for people to keep up to date with you, with your dates? and uh, Just, you know, look on my website. Um, the touring page is empty right now because my gigs in, in uh, the spring aren't all confirmed yet. I'm waiting okay. for them all to confirm before I post it. Yeah. But I'll be posting it within the next couple of weeks. And, um, you can always check out my podcast that I do with Bruce Foreman. Yep. You know, talk, Guitar Wank. Yes. And um, Guitar Wank always informs people of all the latest things that me and Bruce are doing. Bruce is an extraordinary uh, jazz guitarist, one yeah, of the best. Yeah. He's really amazing, and uh, uh, we have a lot of fun doing doing the podcast with him and Troy. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we we keep everybody up on the latest things that are going on, and we talk about a lot of others that we have no business talking about, like and just what's going on around. Yeah, I, I like world. that podcast. You guys, and, uh, you guys meander, but it's always entertaining and interesting. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Sometimes, you know, sometimes we run out of stuff to <laughs> not say, often. but you know, uh, not all interesting. But but yeah, you know, um, I think more often than not, it's pretty funny. Indeed, indeed, it is, and um, great. Cool. Well, Scott, I think I think we've covered a fair bit of stuff. Yeah, man. I think we're good. Thank you so much, Matt. Oh, thank you. Thanks for coming on. It's been fascinating to talk to you. Listen, I really appreciate it. And if you see Joe, tell him hi for me. Yeah, we'll do. And um, yeah, I'll thank him too for, for hooking us up. Well, mate, thank you so much again. And um, yeah, have a great All right. weekend. All right. You too. Take care. All right, Scott Henderson. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking to him. I hope you enjoyed the interview too. And uh, yeah, definitely check out his website and his podcast. And uh, he's, he's got so many records, but yeah, the latest Vibe Station is, is brilliant. So you heard parts of that. I'd definitely encourage you to check that album out. All right, to close out our show, we've got a couple of first birthday greetings from... Uh, yeah, a couple of my, my podcasting friends. Greg Mara runs the Iconoclast Music Podcast. Now, Greg was a guest on our show um, before he started the podcast. He's an incredible guitar player, absolutely unbelievable, and uh, has a great podcast, so you'll hear from him. And John Sullivan from Sully Guitars, incredible guitar builder, and he also runs the Luthierist Podcast, which I love that show, and I don't even build guitars, but... I always enjoy listening to it. So a couple of messages from them. Thank you so much, guys. 
All right, for the rest of you, I will catch you later. My name's Matt Wakeling. You've been listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. I'll catch you next time. Bye now. Hey, this is Greg Marr. I'd like to wish Matt Wakeling of Guitar Speak Podcast a very happy one-year anniversary and all of the best in the future. Keep cranking those shows out, Matt. I love listening. Happy birthday, Guitar Speak Podcast. Happy birthday, Guitar Speak Podcast. Happy birthday, Guitar Speak Podcast. Happy birthday to you. Hey, man. It's Sully from Sully Guitars. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for doing what you're doing. Keep it up. All that good stuff. Happy birthday. Woo!